My name is Jordan Selleck. I am the co-founder and CEO of 51 Labs. Uh, this is a business development and marketing firm focused on the M&A community. Uh, we're the number one content producer on LinkedIn in the lower middle market with over a million views. Uh, we'd like to do good videos and get, I guess, you LinkedIn famous, if that's a thing now. Um, in fact, Bob and I, we, we shot a video. Our, view, our video got something like 10,000 views. You and you're my first vlog that we did to get this kicked off a couple years ago. Let me kind of jump into our agenda for today. First, we're going to do some panelist introductions for the private equity panelists. Then we're going to do the sponsor introductions with Ewan Relly from BDA and Duncan from Kirkland. And then Ewan's going to kind of go through some thoughts around global developments in M&A and private equity. And then there's going to be an open panel discussion. This is meant to be interactive. So if you are attending, uh, please feel free to drop in any questions that you have along the way. We want this to be interactive and interesting. And a couple other housekeeping items. Uh, this is recorded. This is going to be turned into a full video. going to be micro videos. There's going to be a podcast and a written summary available. Uh, a lot of people who we had emailed said they can't attend. They're in Asia. It's 12 hours ahead. It's a little late, but they wanted to, to see this. So we will be sending it. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me, Jordan Selleck, at jordan at 5149labs.com. So I'm going to turn it over to the panelists. And if you are, uh, let's start off with Andre, Duncan, and Ewan. Would you mind just hiding your video for a quick second? And we'll turn it over to Andre for his introduction. Well, thanks, Jordan. Um, Andre Puang. I'm a partner at uh, Cafe Capital Private Equity. Uh, we are an uh, investment platform, a little bit under 4 billion US in AUM, uh, created 15 years ago. And uh, we have offices uh, in, uh, in East Asia, in China, in Singapore, and also Europe and uh, North America. I am based in New York, uh, and we invest uh, in minority and control deals uh, all the, from Series A all the way to, uh, to buyout. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Bob? All right. Yeah, Bob Landis. I'm a partner at the Riverside Company. We were founded in 1988 with a thesis of looking at little leaders at the lower end of the market. And although we started with one person in 1998, and now we're a company with assets under management of about eight and a half billion to 10 billion, depending on how you account for it. And we have over, um, we've bought over 699 companies. Currently we have 112 companies in our portfolio with nine funds around the world. We've never deviated from that strategy. We uh, have always focused on the lower end of the middle market and we will continue to do that. Various funds, uh, lending fund, non-control fund, software fund, two uh, private equity funds control in the United States, uh, one non-control, one in Europe and one in Asia. Awesome, thank you. And Joanne? Hi, Joanne Yu, Managing Director at DPI. DPI is a leading Pan-African private equity firm. We invest in companies that benefit from the growth of the emerging middle class. We're headquartered out of London, but um, our investments are based all across the continent in more than 30 countries, and we're currently investing out of Fund 3. We also hold very strong ESG practices and, uh, and also an impact strategy, but deliver commercial returns for our investors. All right, uh, and now to one of our two main sponsors, uh, Duncan, let's unhide your video, and if we could hide the other panelists. Great. Um, so I'm Duncan Mista. I'm a, a partner in Kirkland Ellis's Boston office. Um, Kirkland's kind of a global firm, 15 offices around the world and, and a reach that goes much further than that. Um, you know, we, we try and kind of follow our clients wherever they find value. So we have a, you know, reach across all the countries around the world and, and 
look forward to a really fun and exciting discussion today. And Duncan, can you talk a little bit about some of the cross-border activity that you do? Sure. Um, so again, we just, you know, wherever our clients find value, we try and uh, follow them there. So, um, you know, not only do we have practices around the world, but uh, we have clients, um, you know, almost 500 private equity clients around the world that are not, they're geographically agnostic. So um, we try and follow the transactions wherever they are, as opposed to be tied to one, you know, jurisdiction in the United States. Thank you. Uh, Ewan? Can't start on my video because the host has stopped it, but maybe you don't need uh -oh. video, that's fine. Uh, we um, do, definitely. <laughs> Let's get it going. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm Ewan Relly. Thanks a lot for organizing this, Jordan. Thanks to everyone else for joining. Um, I'm very pleased to have worked over my career with most of the people on this uh, session and with all of the firms on this session, with the exception of DPI. Uh, we're unsophisticated, so we haven't done, done uh, uh, anything in Africa yet, Joanne, but we know your firm very well by reputation, and I'm really glad to have the chance to meet you. We've tried to build a best-in-class uh, mid-market uh, advisory firm covering connecting Asia with the rest of the world. I, I co-founded the firm 24 years ago, so I was in my late 20s when I started the firm, and I'm now in my mid-50s today in the strange position of uh, being an employer and co-worker to quite a few young men and women who were not born yet when I invented this company. So that's a bit strange. Um, but we, we have watched the development of the private equity industry, uh, really the proliferation of private equity in Asia, and uh, we are excited about the good things that private equity is doing for the markets in which we operate. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Let's move over, over to uh, global developments in M&A and private equity uh, with an update from you. And as we're going through these slides uh, to the guests, like, please feel free to drop some more questions in, in this and to the panelists. Let's make this a lot, uh, an active discussion. Uh, we can either do it through these slides or at the end, however you'd like to. But Yuan, over to you. The, the rather, rather uh, well-known Chinese dictum, uh, kind of an, an insult or a curse that Chinese people use sometimes is, may you live in interesting times. Well, we're certainly living in interesting times at the moment. COVID has meant that global bioactivity has dropped precipitously, uh, something like 60%, uh, according to the work that we've the analysis that we've done. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's a record amount of dry powder globally. So there's a huge number of private equity firms thriving, continuing to raise big sums of money and trying to put that money to work, but in an environment where it's hard to do diligence, it's hard to close transactions. Obviously, uh, the banks always say they're open and lending, but it's harder to raise debt capital uh, to, to support LBO transactions valuations have stayed fairly high. I'm, I was surprised by our analysis that the average uh, enterprise value to EBITDA multiple on global transactions last year was uh, 11 times. And uh, I think we say in the US, most transactions trade at higher than that. So, you know, this is a very robust sector with lots of money, uh, where, where lots of money has been put to work. And um, obviously the intention is the uh, private equity firms you know, have to have to keep buying. Uh, it's a hard time to sell too, but they have to keep buying and selling uh, today in in a market which is which is very challenging. Uh, maybe we'll move to the next slide, Jordan. Uh, U.S. private equity, um, a trillion dollars. Uh, uh, that's a number so big. I, even though I'm an investment banker, I don't really know what a trillion dollars is, but that's a lot of uh, <laughs> a dry powder 
some of it represented on this on this call today. Um, and I, I, I want to just mention something we've seen specifically. KKR uh, has has been quite public and vocal about this. They said they KKR missed some opportunities in the last sharp downturn in 2009, um, and they were excessively cautious over that period. Uh, but the transactions that you know come from that vintage uh, have performed very well, and so KKR has expressly determined this year that they will continue to deploy capital aggressively, uh, including uh, notably in, in Reliance Geo in India, where just about everybody's piled in uh, to the tune of $20 billion combined private equity investment uh, over the last couple of months. So, you know, US, US, uh, the, the US private equity market is still the most sophisticated in the world. The players here in the US are the most sophisticated in the world. It's the most competitive private equity market in the world, but returns have been pretty good. Uh, through the first half of this year, we saw naturally those private equity firms turned their attention to their existing portfolios, try to fix those portfolio companies to the extent they could, reducing costs in many cases, but also finding different ways to preserve cash uh, and to take full advantage of any um, debt facilities that they had. Uh, but but again, this is now a pretty arguably a pretty favourable buying environment. What we normally see in markets downturn markets like this is the biggest guys uh, gain market share. They can still get deals done where some of the more marginal and smaller players find it harder. Um, so we're, we're seeing you know strong activity from the from the biggest players in the market. Uh, but but obviously numbers are going to be down overall pretty sharply this year, both both uh, deal count and deal value. Maybe Bob, uh, I'll just ask you to jump in here. Bob, your firm Riverside is a U.S. domiciled firm, a firm that has historically operated in in lots of international markets. But obviously your home base is clearly the U.S. How uh, maybe I'll ask you how Riverside is performing today and. Uh, uh, how what what your priorities are in this in this market? You know, it's interesting. You and as you were talking, I was making notes on that one page on the U.S. private equity market. And my first response was, "What you're talking about focusing on portfolio company operations?" We uh, we shut down or stopped going into the office on the 13th of March. Two days after that, we created virus uh, response team to address that, and we started looking at every one of our portfolios, the 82 uh, that we control, and then all the ones that we have either loans in, what can we affect on those? First thing we did was say, okay, let's do two different budgets, 25% decline in revenue, 50% decline in revenue. Come back to us in a couple of weeks, tell us what's happening, what are you going to do if this happens, and what are you gonna do if it's a 50% response? Some of them were 50%, some of them get affected, and some of them we were able to pivot incredibly quickly to, even though we were no longer we were classified non-essential. We became essential. We have a couple of textile companies, uh, Marina and Elite make gymnastic equipment and compression equipment. We started making uh, gas uh, masks for, uh, for, uh, because of the supply was, was, was minimal. Did the same thing in Europe with Galvanina. We had an uh, alcohol distribution company. We converted some of the lower priced products to making uh, hand sanitizer. Moving on to the other one, the favorable environment for smaller bolt-ons. Since we shut down, and I don't want to say shut down, since we departed from our offices and working in our own beautiful environments at home, we've uh, bought 18 companies. And as you pointed out, a significant number of those have been add-ons. Although last week, we sold a company and bought a company. So it's 
there is some activity on the exit side. And then the alternative hey, hey Bob, back to back to that point on buying companies. Um, yeah. You know, you have what 112 companies and are one of the most active players. Have you bought companies, either platform or add-ons, that have been with no on-site diligence or very minimal on-site diligence? And then after that, you know, Duncan, I'd love to hear your perspective from a legal uh, point of view. And Andre and Joanne, uh, same question to you afterwards. Best way to answer that. Is it better to buy a poor company with good management or a good company with poor management? I'll, I'll, I'll take the poor company with good management because you can work on that. What we have found, and again, the majority of the companies we bought or add-ons, although there have been some platforms, and I'll address that quickly. But what we have found is that most of the companies that were platforms, we have already met the management. One of my colleagues, Matt Deli, who is uh, he does research on specific segments like uh, tick uh, and uh, food services or food products, food safety. He drug our investment professionals out four or five months before this happened around Christmas time, said, I've got all these companies I want you to see. And the investment professionals are very busy. They said, well, we've got all these other things. On the first visit, just tell us, no, you come with us. Of those five companies, we bought one and two or three we're still interested in. Many of the companies that we have met uh, Lincoln and some of the other investments where they have the one-on-ones, we've attended those. We got a really good feel for that. Uh, Jeffries has done the same thing with their healthcare conference, Raymond James. By attending those, we got to meet the management ahead of time. So it made it a lot easier. You're right, the on-site inspections, that's, it's still a tough one and we haven't done that many platforms. But in uh, the one company, the Riverside Acceleration Capital, where they provide two to five million of loans for startup ventures, as long as they have at least three million of ARR. I mean, if you go do an on-site investment for a software company that's three million of ARR already, you're going to see a bunch of software engineers, maybe in their sweatsuits, creating code. And all you have to do is look at their books, you look at their sales, their revenue. There's not a lot of tires to kick. Manufacturing, it's a lot different. So I won't say we struggle, but we're trying to get around it. We have thought about uh, one add-on maybe even chartering a plane because they're up in Canada and we take our management and everybody puts on their mask and sit around the table. We, uh, we're going to work on that. It's, it's harder. It's a lot slower, but it can be done. Yeah, I know there is a deal done, um, a Chicago-based investment uh, advisor, uh, a Swiss company, a strategic bought a, I think it was a Chicago-based uh, consumer products company, and it was, there was no diligence, but it was a strategic, and they've been following that asset for years. So I didn't know if there were new deals in the pipeline that uh, advisors had shown you, you know, Bob, Joanne, or Andre, that, you know, you're like, yes, we can underwrite this, and we're just going to adjust it in a different way because we can't do as much diligence. But you know, Andre, Joe, I'd love to hear your perspective and then Duncan, what you've seen from the legal side. Yeah, I think very similar to, 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 to Bob, we have closed um, acquisitions um, to what you just said, uh, Jordan, we have closed acquisition. Uh, and I will say, I will qualify them as, you know, uh, from two different perspectives. One geographically, uh, the acquisitions that we, platform acquisitions that we have closed in the past two or three months were primarily outside of the US, you know, uh, and that speaks to maybe to some extent to the, the progress of recovery and I would say level of still uncertainty uh, that there is in the North American PE market in terms of underwriting any financial figures, any financial projections at this point in time. And uh, in Europe, uh, you know, second point I would like to make on this close acquisition is that those are assets indeed that you know our teams in uh, in Paris in particular or in Germany have been following for 
a number of months, if not years, have been in either preemptive situations uh, or have known the assets very well uh, and were really prepared and have met the management teams prior uh, to the COVID lockdowns. In here in the US, we are in the process of completing one add-on uh, without any management meetings and on-site due diligence, but it's a very small asset that tuck in uh, in the e-commerce space um, and uh, primarily to pivot a, a, a business into the digital digital world. And, uh, and this token in itself is actually a fairly decentralized virtual uh, business, if you will, with you know, people in the Philippines and, and, and founders you know, traveling all around the world. Uh, so even pre-COVID, we wouldn't have met the founder and the management team. And obviously also because of the stock in, there's a, we are relying on the current platform, the acquirers uh, platform, the current platform management team to really run this business post-acquisition. So, to sum it up, you know, still a little bit hard to, uh, you know, invest in companies that you hear and meet for the first time virtually and underwrite uh, and underwrite it as far as that we concerned at Cafe. Nice, Joanne. Sure. Um, so for DPI, nothing has changed from a deal perspective. In fact, we're busier than we've ever been before. But just to take a step back, the pandemic didn't come to Africa um, until much later. And so um, didn't come to the continent until the end of March. And it was really brought by people flying in from Europe. But um, thankfully, Africa actually shut down early, it, um, the same time as Europe. So every country um, banned international travel. Most countries had total lockdown and curfew and really just limited the number of people. So again, the virus didn't spread. So domestically, um, the population just, again, did not get infected. Africa also has the youngest population in the world. The average age is about 20. And so we know that this, uh, this uh, virus hits um, older, more vulnerable people. And Africa is just um, not as connected to the rest of the world in terms of flights. So overall, while um, COVID-19 is, is a global issue, Africa, Africa on a relative basis is doing much better. But- um, Joy, can you talk a little bit about like the portfolio? And it'd be interesting to kind of hear how your portfolio companies might have compared to more global platforms or US focused platforms that you know, Bob and Andre um, work with. The difference I think is that um, we don't participate in auctions. Um, we're really working on proprietary deals. And so nothing's changed from a deal perspective. We just closed the deal six weeks ago in the agribusiness space, uh, no COVID impact. Um, we just signed a deal last week um, within the pharmaceutical space, which is much needed for Africa and we're intending to close. Uh, we also have an investment in the FinTech space. Everyone's using their phones more so that business has performed well. So overall, um, what we're seeing in, um, in our current fund is that uh, our companies are in defensive industries, essential sectors. From a deal structuring perspective, we made sure to structure and downside protection, providing a minimal, uh, minimum level of return that's actually enforceable, structuring and earnout pres uh, provisions, management incentives, or even tranching our investment. In terms of our portfolio work, we developed the proprietary Africa CEO checklist uh, that was really developed as an organized way of working with our companies. 
we decided to make this open source and publicly available. We didn't feel like this was a time during a pandemic to be proprietary for information. So we shared it with our investors, shared it with other private equity uh, firms, and just, again, with uh, African CEOs. And so um, in terms of this work, the first thing that we made sure was that every company in our portfolio had a COVID task force, which was typically the Exco. Then we did a lot of scenario, scenario planning with our companies to ensure that they had strong balance sheets. So again, modeled in full shutdown, partial shutdown, and lockdowns ranging from six month, nine month to one year. We found that most of our uh, companies had adequate cash and working capital. Then we looked at supply chain, which was less of an impact in Africa because you can't do just-in-time inventory like the US and Europe. So most African companies hold about six months of inventory because they have to stock up. And then I think lastly, what we found was that more than two thirds of our portfolio was deemed as operating in essential uh, industries and businesses. So again, weren't impacted by shutdown. So overall, what we're seeing is um, a good portion of our portfolio is up year over year. And even as we're getting June numbers in are up month to month. That's awesome. Uh, Duncan, love to hear your thoughts. Sure. So um, Joanne actually just said something very interesting that I'm actually seeing quite a bit. So um, during the, the lockdown, closed a handful of deals from, from my basement, um, one in, in Switzerland, uh, one in Germany, another in France, one in India. Um, and many of these were add-ons for the same platform. And uh, as the kind of lockdown matured, we started to see the use of earnouts a lot more. And I think that that's, um, you know, risk shifting on the, the kind of financial diligence a little bit to the sellers, which were, you know, maybe were prevalent for a while, but had started to kind of, you know, be offensive in, in some of the more hot auctions. But we're starting to see a little bit more of that. I don't know if that's a global trend or if it's just in some of the industries that are still trading during the lockdown. Also saw a lot of pressure kind of on the legal diligence side on making sure that the customer and supplier relationships were, you know, <clears throat> that we took that diligence kind of one step further, meaning uh, it's not enough to diligence kind of the legal contracts with those customers and suppliers, but it's also important to kind of diligence the health of those customers and suppliers. Because if the company that you're looking to purchase is healthy, but, you know, it's, it's commercial relationships aren't, puts a lot of pressure on the kind of the case that your client's making to acquire that company. So hopefully, uh, you know, Joanne did mention that the kind of maturity of the progression of recovery does have an impact and, and we're seeing our clients kind of go overseas to try and find value because there's a lot of uncertainty in that in the United States. But, um, you know, hopefully we're turning a corner here as well and, and deal activity is beginning to pick up. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of talk about when you look at the past six months and deploying new capital, what are the opportunities you now see that we might not have thought about six months ago? And I'd be curious to hear kind of what you see, maybe from an industry perspective or maybe geographically focused. Uh, Andre, I'd love to start with you. So we have at CAFE a very wide spectrum of investment uh, strategy. I mean, not strategy, but just you know, investment stages that we can uh, deploy capital in, uh, going from Series A, which is more tech focused for us, all the way to, to buyout. Uh, so I think what you know has um, permeated to the past three months is that you know we are um, you know seeing a lot more you know trend towards you know uh, visualization of some of the you know more established businesses in our portfolio, but also um, you know we see bankers that or at least hope those who are still showing us 
uh, any assets and even investment opportunities a you know more focused on making sure that they emphasize you know how well the the companies are doing the clients are doing on Amazon and and over digital channels and you know how they are performing on social media including TikTok etc. So you know we are seeing uh, so we are definitely following that trend you know putting more emphasis on how to uh, see you know new mark new opportunities through the lens of what does that mean in terms of uh, when you have people working more remotely, what does it mean in terms of, you know, we are very active in the office furniture space and, you know, definitely this vertical is getting offended by, in the U.S. at least in terms of, you know, how people are uh, going back to work or the lack thereof of uh, returning back to the offices. We are generally speaking, uh, you know, leveraging also our uh, knowledge experience networks in, in the tech world have a view on how certain industries are going to evolve and we know that in the consumer space it will be more obviously more e-commerce uh, but we also know that in you know in the food and beverage industry it will be more wellness and 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 particular attention to ESG to you know uh, and health conscious projects consensus uh, consumption uh, will be on the rise as well we are uh, continue to be very active uh, in the healthcare space to our investment in Europe in the past three months have been in healthcare healthcare space, uh, CDMO, and, and some uh, data analytics uh, in uh, serving the healthcare industry. And we continue to believe that uh, it's a very uh, good vertical to deploy capital in. I think, you know, those are uh, very obvious themes and verticals that we are focusing more efforts on. Uh, again, we are generalists, like, you know, the co-panelists that we have uh, today in the firms. And so that's give us a lot of flexibility in terms of you know, uh, refocusing, uh, reshifting some of our efforts in terms of uh, sector focus. Awesome. And before we kind of go around, I think this your, your point about TikTok raises a really interesting point. I was reading, I think it was in Axios, that TikTok is, might even be banned in the U.S. And it's made me think about one of my good friends who has like 5 million followers on TikTok. A significant amount of his business is due to that. For me, it's the same thing with LinkedIn. And it kind of made me think about just highlighting the importance of diversifying. And it's so hard, like when you're in a crisis, you want to do what you're best at. You want to get really deep in it. But that was just another reminder about whether it's your services or products that need to diversify. It would be interesting just kind of, you know, maybe you can, I'll throw that one out there. We can come back to it. But I just thought it was a really interesting point about the need to diversify even when it's a crisis. Well, I think particularly now, I would say we, we broad range of clients and we see some of them a fleet of foot. I think, you know, we live in, in these very volatile, edgy times. Good companies react fast and uh, good entrepreneurs. Bob talked about the importance of strong management. I think good entrepreneurs know how to react and make decisions uh, on the fly. Um, and, you know, I, for, for the companies I see that perform well, it's not even about getting the decision right every time. Nobody's going to make the right step every time. But being able to act and react quickly is, is clearly pretty important today. We see that in the companies we work with uh, globally. Ewan, what have you seen in terms of the services? Because I've, you know, five, six months ago, it, it sounded like there was a new service line for restructuring and 95% of advisors out there. <laughs> um, and it's like, it's part of that defensive mechanism where they just had to figure out how to work through this. Um, but I was curious to hear, like, how has, where you are at now, where the business is at with BDA, you know, BDA has been around for what, 24 years, you've been yep. through cycles. Yep. How does this cycle and how the firm is 
reacting in terms of providing services globally? How have you adjusted? Well, again, we're trying to be fleet of foot. Uh, I'm 52 years old, so I'm not going to change what I do tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and actually, we have a very good partnership with William Blair, which owns 10% of, of, of BDA. They've decided not to go into restructuring. Uh, and I'm surprised. They keep saying, why aren't you building a restructuring team? They've decided that they'll find ways of making money from, from, from M&A. Uh, definitely one of the slides we had uh, talks about uh, pipes. We're seeing some, some interest in, in, from private equity firms make, in making investments into publicly traded companies that may need capital in a way they didn't previously. Uh, absolutely, I agree with Duncan that people are looking at structuring in other ways. But for us, it's still about core M&A. And actually, this is when we earn our money uh, as bankers in difficult times in helping to get transactions done, in bridging uh, you know, what happens automatically when things turn down, buyers become more cautious and, and sellers tend to say, we're not going to sell at a massive discount. So you have to try and bridge that and earn out an obvious way of doing it. We've been spending a lot of time, it seems rather nerdy and boring, but we've been spending a lot of time in trying to figure out how to present companies' financials appropriately Typically, we work on the sell side more often. So we're trying to help business owners present their business this year uh, in a market where, where maybe there was an interruption of business. So how do you normalize EBITDA? How do you say, you know, we had a great first quarter and then business fell off a cliff in March and April. How am I going to present my company going forward? Because I don't want to be paid only three quarters of the price just because there was a short-term shutdown. And I think, again, this is about being, being you know, th there's a limit to how creative and aggressive you can be, but I think it's about being smart and reasonable, intellectually robust, but also creative in, in trying to structure things. And that's how we're spending time, because the difference in my business, in the investment banking business, and I think it probably applies to private equity firms and, and, and maybe to lawyers too, you have to keep the close rate high. You know, there's no point in spending tons and tons of time on deals that don't close. None of us is going to make a living that way. So we have to find a way, even when markets are tougher, to get stuff done. Uh, and, and it requires, you know, being smart, being tenacious, being creative, and having the confidence and experience to navigate what are treacherous waters. Well, let's take a pause and kind of shift over to some of the questions over here. Uh, anonymous attendee, uh, will the China plus one strategies of many companies mean that there will be a lot of operating assets for sale in China? And will those assets retain their value over the following five to 10 years? Who would like to take that? Well, you've got to let me have a quick one on that. So China, China has been, we've, our biggest office at BDA is, is, is Shanghai. We've got 20 professionals there. Um, Cross-board, the, the, the relationship between China and the US is not terrific today. Both political parties, this isn't just a Trump administration thing, both political parties in the US are pretty down on China today. And to a considerable degree, we're seeing the same thing from European investors and so on. Actually, uh, again, one of the first things I was taught as a banker is change creates opportunities. Um, so we're seeing a lot of multinationals think about divesting their assets in China, and we need to figure out how to help them do that. What it means for us is that China M&A activity is becoming more domestic Chinese rather than cross-border. So the stuff that we're selling in China today, we can get deals done. It's mostly going to Chinese buyers. 
and that may be Chinese private equity firms or Chinese strategics, but that's fine. We're happy to get that done. I don't know, Andre, uh, Andre's firm is famously uh, China connected, well connected in China and has done extremely well as a result of that. Andre, I don't know how you guys are dealing with the fact that cross-border is, is much harder now uh, when, as it pertains to China. It's great for us, uh, I would say, because we are, although we have used the word cross-border to describe ourselves in the past, uh, I think at the end of the day, we are a global platform with local teams. So in China, we are viewed as a local acquirer, local private equity firm. In the US, we view it local. Uh, but we're leveraging and same in Europe and we're leveraging on global platform. So I think we are, you know, uh, CFUs and tariffs and all these issues have been extremely big impediments to a lot of our competitors, especially strategic ones uh, in terms of uh, when it comes to Chinese acquirers, strategic acquirers in particular, trying to acquire assets here in the U.S. So uh, we have not seen the like of, uh, you know, the big conglomerates, you know, um, I don't want to name anyone here, but uh, you know, in any process, uh, you know, in recent, I would say, memories. So uh, it has played in our favor, but it is true to your point that you know, it's harder and harder to, and if you want to do the converse in terms of uh, being a, let's say, even a strategic uh, buying asset in China, it's become harder and harder, harder. A lot of capital um, uh, at, uh, raised in China for the domestic markets, competing with the more established global funds, and if you don't have it in, if you don't have, you know, as some of my colleagues say, if you don't issue a term sheet, uh, you know, in 48 hours, you're out of the door. It's worse than Silicon Valley. Very interesting. Bob, Riverside historically has been pretty global in, in the things you've looked at. I suspect you may be looking more at uh, the U.S. and Europe today than, than Asia. Is that the case? Um, the majority of our assets and people are in the United States as well as Europe. But um, we, our very first fund focused in Asia, it was, it was Pan-Asia. We had an office in Korea, we had an office in Japan. Uh, we still have an office in Hong Kong that provides more advice and sourcing. You know, if, if we're trying to source out of China, our people in Hong Kong know everybody in China. By that, I mean, they know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who can do the due diligence, as well as Taiwan, as well as Korea. So um, they're not necessarily the investing side, but they are a service part of our business. Our more recent funds have focused because we've had moderate success. I mean, we did some really good deals right off the bat in Japan, which has been difficult because it usually takes 10, 15 years to get to know people, but we always hire local. Um, but the, the amount of deals and transactions that we did in Korea and we did in Japan, and uh, we've never done a real platform. We've done Greenfields, but they've been uh, subsidiaries of a U.S. company have panned out, but you know, we're here and it's a little bit more difficult. So we've, now focus almost all of our business in New Zealand and Australia. And that's where our main office there is in Melbourne. So it's, I won't call it a retrenchment, I'll call it a, a view as to where our, is the best source of our assets to be, to be deployed. Makes sense. Yeah, and Andre mentioned something that, um, you know, bears repeating with, with CFIUS and just kind of government intervention in the M&A process, um, how that's certainly not helping the U.S.-China M&A activity, but it also, the government intervention in, in M&A process is not helping Europe either, you know, with the advent of GDPR, for instance, is, is putting a lot of pressure on companies in that regard. Privacy laws tightening in the U.S. for companies coming into the U.S., um, you know, ITAR regulations for 
for companies that, that trade in arms and munitions. So um, we do see appetite across the world, not just in the U.S. And, and with this administration, you know, wanting to tighten the screws on the M&A process, uh, you know, to the extent possible. And I, would, I would maybe just add what's interesting with regards to your reaction to TikTok, Jordan, is that you see, you are seeing further decoupling of, you know, China versus, you know, uh, I would say the Western world when it comes to uh, some infrastructure where we're talking about, you know, e-commerce, social media, you know, usually on the technology side, uh, and that's getting exacerbated. And that uh, exacerbation it results, I mean, doesn't really impact the fact that a lot of uh, companies, whether in business services, healthcare, or in running consumer, still, you know, at some point in time wants to go to China, or Chinese companies will increasingly want actually to go to Europe. Uh, and they are still very active in Europe when it comes to M&A. Uh, I, would, I would believe compared to the US especially. So uh, you need investors, you need partners who understand how to do business still cross-border, how to on, how you understand distribution channels in China, how you understand, even if TikTok tomorrow becomes only a Chinese platform, well, it's already too big in China. You can't avoid it. Uh, that's the reality. And, and if you don't understand it, well, forget about it. You probably in the next 18 months won't be able to do any business uh, in the consumer space in China, if you don't understand that platform. So you think that this is just going through the same cycle of, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, okay, we're going to go multinational, go to China, set up the facility, uh, IP is taken, but hey, guess what? We got to stay there anyways. It's a long play. Are we just seeing the same theme play out? Yes. I mean, it's even longer play these days. I think, you know, uh, 20 years ago, you could do business in the hotel lobby, luxury hotel lobby in, in, in China. Uh, and then find a lot of partners, distribution partners knocking on your door if you have a good product and a good brand uh, uh, in, uh, in Western markets. Today, you have increasingly competitive local brands, you know, uh, competitors uh, that are going to eat your lunch if you're not extremely aggressive, uh, if you don't localize your business, you know, from the get-go. Uh, I think it's not, it's less of a repeat than, you know, increasingly difficult environment uh, for multinational and for would-be, want to be multinational businesses that don't uh, understand that, you know, they, uh, they can't use the playbook of 20 years ago and say, you know, you know what, I have a good brand, good product, China needs it, and I'm going to give it to them. It's, it's, there's a lot of, you know, hurdles to overcome before you can even sell one, one, one single item to the Chinese consumers these days. I, I agree with that. I think I think uh, the global markets are, are evolving fast, and I think there is a you know clearly um, for, for for some political reasons, notably there are some there's some retrenchment at the moment as protectionism is you know nationalism and protectionism feel like the flavor of this month. But I w I'm I'm not pessimistic at all about the longer term. You know we're seeing big private equity firms starting to deploy serious capital in India. There's a jockeying for attention, you know, should they turn their attention to India to some extent instead of China. But, but you know, we live in a very connected world and, and I don't expect that to reduce. You know, we still have, as of today, I think the, 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 there are a million foreign students studying in the US today. Those students are going to go back to the rest of the world and they're going to want to communicate and do business together. and sooner or later start traveling. And so the notion that, that you know, we're decoupling permanently doesn't make sense to me. That's not something I see. And I think you know, most ambitious young men and women want to, be, want to be global in the future. So again, the smartest investors find ways to navigate 
uh, uh, the hurdles, um, but we are going to uh, uh, stop being a global, a globalized world. I don't. I, I have a question. Like, what do you think about returns for investors? People who were going to China first and then went through this cycle over the past five and 10 years of, of outside investors, you know, the, the largest funds doing that, should they, sh are they shifting their risk profile towards more emerging markets with uh, less hurdles um, and just more opportunity and just higher returns? You know, Bob, I'd love to hear kind of your perspective of what that looks like from Riverside looking at globally allocating as well as across funds. And Joanne, I'd love to hear your thoughts around kind of what this means in across Africa and the evolution of it. Since the growth in particular of the past 18 years, we have continued to expand globally as well as diversification into the United States. Uh, to go to Ewan's point about, uh, uh, his last point on his slide about diversification, you know, we have that Riverside Value Fund, which is now looking at slightly distressed uh, companies that have fixable flaws. And they're looking, you know, anywhere in, in, in the world that makes that makes sense. Uh, as far as Asia goes, you know, we've been making more of our money in Australia and New Zealand, but that office in Hong Kong is very, very important to us. It gives us uh, a presence and a foot into the Chinese market. Um, we've never done a platform there, but we have done lots of business. We still continue to source. I think because of COVID, this, people are going to start looking at different supply lines. They're going to look for greater diversification. They want somebody. They don't want to have to depend upon all of our drugs on one company, the, all of our PP&E uh, protective equipment on one country. But there still is going to be a rationale for diversification of supplies. And China is, is clearly one of the premier manufacturers. And it's not just China. I mean, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Thailand, India. Um, we're constantly looking and we're expanding there as well. I think what most PE firms are also going to be start looking at is, you know, and I'm, this is not a patriotic statement. It's a simple logistics supply line by America. They need to have some foot load hold in the United States. They've outsourced everything. And the, the supply line time, if with one little, it's very thin. And, if, and it's always that, that change. As we started to go through that old Bain discussion that they came up with in May about what PE firms should do. First thing you look is your supply lines. And now that we're coming, I won't call it a recovery, but it's coming into the uh, the next phase of we've, we've fixed our PE firms or we've addressed that. What do we do for the future for retooling? We're looking at all the supply lines and it's always a very, very fine line. How much do we spend for greater diversification of supply lines versus um, looking only at the bottom line and if a pandemic happens or some other disaster, uh, or relationships with China again come worse, we have no supply line. Yeah. So I think we're starting to look at that, um, but I, I do not think that most rational businessmen would totally exclude China. Uh, I, I will say that when they get to the border, they leave their cell phones and their laptops at home for the rational. Okay, business. well now we need to address the elephant in the room, Hong Kong. Uh, Ewan, the the moderate, <laughs> the advisor here, we'll, we'll let the investors kind of step aside, we'll let you do this. Hong Kong. Um, oh. So is it really going to be the center as it is and as important as it is, or is our investors, our multinationals saying, I'm out of here, I'm going to Singapore, I'm going to another emerging market. Um, what, do, what do you think in the next couple of years and maybe even mid to long term? I think things evolve and I think the role of Hong Kong will change. I think the mood in Hong Kong is very bleak today, frankly speaking. It feels like, you know, they had uh, civil unrest, they had... Um, pollution troubles, they've had 
political uh, concerns with, with 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 the mainland, and, uh, and yeah, it's it, frankly speaking, it's it's bleak today. So both bankers and private equity firms are are moving already. Um, and we've seen this week the New York Times has moved some of its editorial to Seoul. Uh, we're seeing you know our own bankers are less keen to bring up families and children in Hong Kong than they would have been, and Singapore will be a beneficiary of that. Having said that, there are some, always there are unintended consequences and, and, and things that you don't realize at first. Hong Kong may benefit in some ways from being tied closer to China. We're seeing lots of Chinese companies who are less keen on potentially seeking uh, IPOs or uh, stock market listings in the West and are thinking of uh, uh, doing that in, in Hong Kong instead. Um, and so, you know, we can be sure that the, the Chinese authorities, however ham-fisted it seems sometimes Chinese policy, they're not totally self-destructive either. And the Chinese authorities will do what's needed to make sure that Hong Kong preserves value and remains a, uh, uh, you know, an attractive place to do business. But, but in the shorter term, I think it is kind of being combined with, with China. We're seeing a, quite a sort of um, significant step in bringing, you know, it's an acceleration of, of effectively what the British hoped would take 50 years. There's a big step forward now and, and, and Hong Kong being tied, tied much, much closer. The leash has been shortened. Um, so that, that means certainly knock-on effects for neighboring countries. You know, it means potentially question over what will happen to Taiwan, but potentially Taiwan becoming more exciting. Definitely Vietnam, which Bob mentioned, uh, has been a kind of secret, a secret weapon for us. Bankers and private equity firms were slow to see the opportunity in Vietnam. We moved there early, partly because a couple, as you know, Jordan, a couple of people who senior people who work for BDA had had personal romantic entanglements or whatever, personal connections to Vietnam. Vietnam's been an absolutely spectacular market for us. And Vietnam now has a thriving stock market and a wildly uh, successful private equity market, which is growing fast. And, um, you know, the Vietnamese have been smart to try and take advantage of being kind of a foil to China. So, you know, again, I can't, I can't simply describe what will happen in the future of the world other than to say um, things do evolve. And Bob's right. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. I've always said that, you know, we're very pleased at BDA that we have offices all over Asia. And often we see that when Korea is going through a tough patch, maybe Japan does better. We're seeing one thing we haven't talked about on this call, Japanese buyers globally are being quite aggressive today. Historically, they had a bad reputation for taking a long time to get anywhere on deals, for being slow and indecisive. We're seeing very aggressive activity by Japanese buyers who are absolutely conscious of the fact that to some extent, the, the mainland Chinese buyers are locked out of auction processes globally. And so, you know, Japan is trying to fill the gap and trying to find opportunities that have been created by, uh, by you know, China, China friction. Um, so, yeah, things evolve. And, and, and again, um, nothing, nothing is permanent. Nothing stays in, in, in one form forever. And, uh, you know, Hong Kong is, is clearly having a really, really bad patch today. But um, as always, we hope and expect eventually cooler heads will prevail. And, you know, Hong Kong's a wonderful city that, that, that I love and where I've been very successful in my career and had wonderful experiences. I don't for a moment think uh, 
think is over forever. Um, Joanne, I'd love to hear your perspective. You know, Ewan talked about Vietnam being the secret weapon of, you know, their advisory business and seeing things that others didn't. In Africa, you, you, cross, you invest across Africa. What are some of the things that people need to know about, about particularly interesting places to deploy capital? So overall, um, we're focused on some of the larger economies because we are investing in established, profitable businesses. So um, that would include the major economies in Africa. And a lot of times we do execute Pan-Africa or even um, back regional champions. There are extremely low levels of uh, debt available in Africa. So our entire um, investment thesis is um, really dependent on growth rather than financial engin engineering or I know the conversation in Asia was also um, around trade or um, there's also export considerations. This is not, um, this is, this is not so much um, a worry for us because we're focused on the, um, the middle class consumer. So what we're finding currently, we think that this recent crisis is quite unprecedented, but Africa is used to shocks, recessions, civil unrest, natural disasters, and even the most recent pandemic, having lived through Ebola myself a few years ago, um, we've, we've seen this um, and we, we, so we're used to this. But um, DPI's thesis is really focused on the middle class um, consumer. And we see that the consumer is hurting. Uh, discretionary income has gone down and perhaps completely shifted to non-discretionary in some cases, but the consumer still needs basic goods and services, still needs financial services, healthcare, education, still needs to eat. So I think where we've really focused um, our portfolio and the investment opportunity is around the affordable value segment and also um, businesses that can innovate in terms of how to reach um, this segment of the consumer. So that um, has to do with um, different delivery models kiosks where consumers don't have to actually go into a storefront and can pick up the um, whatever, they, whatever they've ordered outside at the sidewalk. But overall, leapfrogging in Africa is a core thesis. So for example, um, very little landlines. Um, so everybody's dependent on their mobile phone, which is everything. It's a mobile wallet. It's a form of communication. It's a formal, um, it's a way of life. So the digital and e-commerce story um, is very crucial. I think the other thing just to touch on is, um, that's very important for private equity is exits. We're getting asked a lot about um, impact of, um, of COVID on, on near-term exits. Would say that from a, um, there is still demand for very high quality assets. And we had kicked off an auction process um, for one of our companies just before COVID hit in February. We're still in discussions with buyers and negotiating on a normal, normalized EBITDA basis. Um, but what's actually been quite a bit of a surprise to us is that um, some of the bidders have indicated that they do not need to do on the ground visits and that they're comfortable closing with desktop DB or in some cases outsourcing maybe to a third party local con consultant. So um, again, um, we think that um, in some instances, it's businesses as usual, but um, would say with some processes that are much earlier on um, 
there, there is a bit of a delay. Thank you. So we have about five minutes left and I'd like to kind of get to these questions that the attendees have uh, asked. And if we cannot do them, we'll do a follow-up uh, in an email with some Q&A. Uh, first by James Hoffman, I had a general question about how these structures get unwrapped in return to Hong Kong and China take private deals. Points of resistance. Duncan, I think you better take that. <laughs> Sounds too technical for me. Well, so I, I the uh, the experience that I have last year, I worked on a deal where um, a Chinese company was investing in the U.S. And I think this is, might be the reverse of the question, but a Chinese company was investing in the U.S. and opted not to go through the CFIUS process and experienced a post-closing CFIUS review and was forced to unwind. I know a lot of people are familiar with the, the grinder process. Um, there was a healthcare company in Cambridge that was involved in one of these. Um, you know, there was a large asset manager that had to do the same in a cybersecurity company. And those are always messy. You do not get fair value for unwinding those kinds of transactions. Um, and I think that uh, it's a great opportunity for buyers in China to take those assets back. But for the buyers and, you know, for the U.S. companies, it, it, in my experience, it hasn't ended well. Thank you. All right, let's go on to the next question. Um, have you found, have you, uh, have you found more, have you found it more difficulty in funding particular deals that are diversified or more difficulty with deals that are primarily segment focused in the last few months? So I think it's kind of question around uh, br broader, uh, more focused uh, companies or more broader companies. Focus, focus companies trade better, easier at higher multiples it's hard to find buyers as a, someone who helps people sell companies. It's hard to find buyers to execute again at full price if, uh, if there's real diversification. And, you know, we are gradually moving towards a more specialized world, gradually but inexorably. And, um, you know, we, we at BDA tried to pioneer sector specialization in our banking practice in, in Asia 20 years ago. Now we're seeing all over the world, private equity funds are increasingly specialized. And I think people are looking, you know, people are looking to invest where they have real domain expertise and domain knowledge. So, yeah, I'm afraid specialization is becoming, gone are the days of being able to be a gentleman, a gentleman scholar, a relaxed all-rounder. Um, those, those days are long gone, I'm afraid. You better, you better, you better learn something and, and, and focus on that. And, and it's even harder for the investment banks to sell a diversified company because the lack of focus. Are you going to price it off of revenue or are you going to price it off of EBITDA? Of course, we would love to price it off of revenue, which means you need a very compelling SaaS-based story if it's a software company. But, and if you can articulate, if it's based off EBITDA, the growth potential, but when you have four, three, two or three different diversified companies, growth might be high here, it might be there, you're going to get a dummy down valuation. So I've, I've, we spent about nine years on the industry as well. I've spent the last 18 months trying to sell a company which is exposed half to the aerospace industry and half to the semiconductor industry and half the, you know, 50% of buyers have said, well, we'll pay you 8x eight, eight for this, but we'll only ascribe 4x to that. And the other half have said the reverse. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, 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 it's hard to do those deals. All right. And for our last question, before we go to a flash poll at the end to see if you like this or not, uh, the last question is, would love to hear the panelists' thoughts on the way the upcoming presidential election will affect their businesses and strategies. Rather than going into detail, let's just do a flash question around the table, which is, um, 
to what extent are you considering this in how you are making your decisions? You know, on a scale of one to five, one, not really, five being absolutely it's in the front of our mind. Let's go around the table. Uh, Joanne? Two. Two? All right. Bob? Yeah, two to three. Andre? Two and a half. <laughs> and on the advice side, Duncan and Ewan? Yeah, one or two. Ewan? One or two. All right, have, so the summary is, opinions, but I can't, we can't, we can't, <laughs> we can't base our business on this. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to launch a quick poll for everyone. Please drop your thoughts in here. Was this worth your time or not? Yes, pretty good. Meh or nope, it was not. Please drop your thoughts in here. Um, would love to hear your feedback. If you have more questions afterwards, please feel free to email me. Any parting words from the panelists uh, reflecting on the past hour, starting with Ewan. This too shall pass. Uh, the future is better than the immediate recent past. Duncan. Yeah, I just uh, looking forward. I, I closed a deal in Switzerland two weeks ago, and the, the sellers in Zurich were actually able to go and celebrate with the beer. So looking forward to do the same <laughs> shortly here in the U.S. <laughs> Joanne. Yesterday I had my uh, three remaining in-person meetings for December uh, canceled, so I'm not hopeful that there will be any in-person meetings for the rest of the year. <laughs> Andre. Uh, I think the uh, mindset is uh, staying uh, flexible, uh, and uh, you know, I'll take you up for the beer anytime soon, then can we uh, invest in a beer business? <laughs> you did. I think I remember last year going to an uh, Upper East Side to celebrate that. Uh, Bob, parting thoughts. Since the Articles of Confederation, we've had 47 recessions, and each one we've come back, and in the last two or three, the markets have rebounded 56 to 85%. Length of rebound, it was not a determining factor, so if it's six months or two years, and the median gain in all cases was 60.8% since 1945. History repeats itself. Bringing us home strong, Bob. All right. Panelists, sponsors, and attendees, thank you so much for joining. And we'll be following up with the video, the podcast, and written materials. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank, thank you, you all. Thank See you. Ya.